And welcome to Brickyard Composition. And I just want to I want to start off this show um, before music or anything, just mentioning that we we decided we we're going to talk about horror stories today. And I've got Richard uh, with me and David with me. Um, so hi, guys. And hi. Um, yeah. And David, we were just on video and he looks horrendous. Sorry, David, to say. But he just said he he was um at went you went shopping today and it took eight hours so I don't I know it's yeah. not art but to just kick off our horror story uh, I feel exactly. like you well you, two 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 hours of prep at home three hours in the store and then two hours scrubbing everything with Lysol before bringing it into the house and another hour to put it away okay oh, man. so yeah it was a bit of an ordeal. I was not right. looking forward to it, but now that it's done with luck, it's it's you know not a situation, and I don't have to go out for about three weeks now. Well, well, are you are you ready for a podcast? Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. So, so we're doing horror stories today. And I guess that are in the art world. Um, so, so, so do either you you guys have anything just sort of to kick off anything that's just you need to you need to tell the world right now? Are there, uh, Richard? You want to go first? Um, I don't. I, I actually, I have to say. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying Brickyard composition, but today's topic, I, thinking about it over the course of the week, and thinking about how we came up with the topic, I, I it came up because I was actually getting kind of sensitive and talking about things that I'd been through in our last episode, mm-hmm. and I, th- these are things that were so traumatic for me that I'm actually this is the first time I'm having a hard time uh, opening up about something on the podcast because it's like i've told the story so many time times and and it's like it's painful every time i have to talk about these things there's so many i and last week i thought maybe maybe i've just encountered an unusually high number of sociopaths in the art world but i don't know david i think you've met some yourself it's it's a place where there are a lot of eccentric people, yes. artists, art collectors, groupies, you know, just it's all over the the board. And as an artist, you know, you're you're trying to be open minded. You're trying to get out there. You're trying to meet people. And you're susceptible because you're looking for opportunities. And, and everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess if I was going to kick off a story, uh Geez, which one would it be? Should I should I should I, <laughs> should I go for a big one or a little one? We'll go Let's, for a big one. Okay. Well, David, I don't think you met him, Dave, but Fred Torres, uh, the legend himself. Uh, he's infamous for not paying his artists, stealing their work, and then selling it on the black market. Uh, I knew this about him when I met him, um, but 
as a young artist in New York City and you know you're you're doing shows you're you're trying to get exposure you try to take a chance and be smart and look for those red flags and I did and I got out you know in the nick of time but it you know wasn't without you know certain number of bruises and the stress of dealing with somebody like that um so it's a long story but I guess one thing that I learned and I knew that before I got involved but uh if you're an artist always use a contract uh anyone who refuses to work with a contract usually has another agenda or there there's some reason why they want to avoid having something in writing so yeah make sure you have something in right even email exchanges uh-huh. i think are acceptable in the court of law i'm not a lawyer don't take that as as law advice but uh i worked with a lawyer specifically you know uh for counsel with the fred torres situation which to be specific uh, in the end was him writing me a bad check for money that he owed me which he only wrote after i showed up to the gallery with a truck and started removing my work from the walls uh it, it was an exhibition i had done in in chelsea um and he got really upset but i could see that this was not going to go well um once the once the gallery transfers your work from the gallery to a satellite storage facility one of who knows how many or where they all are right good luck repossessing your work cuz that's an extremely long process of litigation and it can be extremely expensive and so a lot of people uh they know artists you know especially when they're young they they don't have a lawyer on retainer they're not going to be able to fight them in court uh so oftentimes you walk away with a loss but i did i got my i got my work back and i got a a bad check for i think it was like $3500 or whatever his own bank wouldn't even cash it and uh yeah so i just i never got that money that i was owed and it was it was it was at a really bad time because fred you know he was a piece of shit uh, okay he he got yeah. away with murder he stole a lot of artists work they never got their work back he probably owed millions of dollars in fact he did owe millions of dollars to uh david chapel uh david la chapel and he got destroyed in court so he lost a lot but he was holding on and he got a dream client and it doesn't get better than this he was asked to hang the flat work in a mega apartment at the plaza hotel a saudi arabian client had bought four apartments overlooking central park at the plaza and combined them to make one enormous apartment and and all fred had to do was unload his inventory on this apartment um and so they wanted a special painting uh for the heart of the apartment something that reminded them of home and it turned out it required a commission and so fred thought i was the only artist on his roster that could could manage this type of a commission uh we we decided to work with the theme of the antique carpet the, the you know a middle eastern persian carpet 
Uh, and you guys are familiar with that series. We've talked about them before. Yeah. Dave, you have one in your collection. Well, it yeah. all started there. Uh, this painting was going to be over 90 inches by 60. It was going to be an enormous, enormous canvas. God knows what the price was going to be. Fred never even told me what he, he was he was bidding. But I was working on the preliminaries, small watercolors, maybe 8 by 10 inches, to get final approval of my design. And so I went through three different versions before we agreed, and the client was very, very happy uh, with with the results. And they they cut a check to the gallery to Fred Torres to start. They put down a you know a deposit on on the commission, and he never gave me my share. So I never painted the large scale piece. But it would have it was like as an artist, you're constantly hopefully hopefully constantly getting opportunities and feeling like. This is it. You you're you you've arrived. You're you're going to right. make mm -hmm. it finally. Mm -hmm. Um and so it it turned out to be another heartbreak where I was this close to connecting with a, a client that could really change the game for me. Um and then having to do it all on my own without the support of the commission, without the gallery. Uh, you know, after losing money and all the emotion and the time. So that's one that's one story. And guys, if your gallerist is nodding out, you know, in, in taxi cabs or at dinner, take that as a red flag. <laughs> and, uh, and get out of there because Fred Torres ended up overdosing. Uh, and God knows how much money he owed everybody and, and all that kind of stuff. So I should have known better, but. I, I took said, a chance. I took a said, chance. You said you sort of knew of his reputation before getting involved with him. How did, yeah. did you hear it from other artists? Like how, you know, was this something you looked him up online and saw? Yeah, advice? he had a lot of or? bad press um, okay. all over the Internet. At the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had a lot of bad press all over the Internet. And other artists, I, I knew, I knew uh, other art dealers, I, David, David Griffin on, on, on Brickyard Composition here with us. Uh, he knew about Fred Torres and, and we, we talked about it. So yes. he just had a really bad reputation, but he was, on the other hand, a very nice guy in the sense that he, he was extremely friendly and he was a great storyteller and he had uh, impeccable manners and he it was hard to say no to Fred. He was very like he seemed very kind. And then he had this like criminal mind where every I guess it was all part of his plan or he never had intended to follow through on the the nice things that he he was offering people. Um he was extremely creative too. I've got to give him that. He he thought outside of the box. He 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 was I wouldn't say an artist because you know as we spoke about in in another podcast he he didn't work with any artistic media but he was he was a super creative businessman and I I think he could have gotten back on his feet if he could have kept it together psychologically and and uh. then with the drinking and the drugging uh it, yeah it's just you couldn't bounce back from that and there was no reason not to pay me if i if i had finished the commission for him he probably would have made you know a hundred thousand dollars or something like that on just that that painting i, I mean it was an enormous scale 
work of art that was going to take months. They were going to have to bring it in through the window of the apartment and what like it was going to it wasn't going to fit anywhere else. So, yeah, he just he totally blew it. Yeah, no. It's uh, it's really a shame that whole story, and you know what what happened to him too personally is uh, is actually quite a tragedy. Uh, I think the the art world, as Richard said, it has a lot of eccentric people in it, and one thing that is something that you know if you're if you're planning on going into the art world at all yourself in any professional sense, something to be aware of is the fact that it is a a place where tremendous fortunes can be made. But it is one of the um, one of the places uh, at its level that is very, very, very. There's very little regulation. So in real estate, for example, if you're working as a realtor, if you're working as a developer, if you're working as a sponsor, which is someone who's underwriting a development, there are incredible legal channels you have to go through. You have to be you know, proficient in uh, in codes. You have to understand the legal ramifications of everything to do with your project. You're working uh, generally with unionized employees. If you're a realtor, you have to take classes and actually gain a license. So, you know, there's these big personalities in real estate too, obviously. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of them happens to be the president right at the moment. But um, for most of, for all intents and purposes, the business itself is kind of constrained by what it is legally permitted to do. The art world, that just hasn't really been written into it the same way. There are definitely legal codes and things that manage nonprofit arts organizations, uh, you know, in terms that they are, you know, operating as, as uh, independent organizations. But um, for much of the commercial part of it, and this goes for everything from the artists themselves to the gallerists, um, there's just very little sort of observance of anything other than gen very general and basic protocols. And so you see a lot of fudging. You see a lot of, you know, fake numbers. You have a lot of people who are, you know, not who they appear to be getting away with it because at the end of the day, there's no way to pin them down and say, okay, A and B equals C. So, you know, D, E, and F. That The art world is not as sequential as other types of business are. So when you get a narcissist involved, when you get a psychopath involved, when you get people who simply, you know, are actually the nicest people in the world, but they don't know what they're doing involved, the repercussions for that can be much, much greater than they would be working in, you know, finance, working on Wall Street, working in medicine, because those things are places that are, you know, constricted by federal, state, you know, city, legal, and governing body codes. The art world just really doesn't have a lot of that. So I think there's a lot of loose cannons in the art world. There's a lot of people who storm into situations and, you know, say, well, you know, my way or the highway. And a lot of people feel like they don't have the recourse to say, well, actually, no, it's not your way because there already is a way and it's established by this, 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 and this. So, you know, a lot of the art world is is kind of invented piecemeal. People are like, well, I'm opening a gallery because, and it's not because it's a business model that's going to return a certain rate of investment. They're opening it up because they like the idea. So it becomes very hard to quantify why people do things and I, to hold I them mean, down to it. This, this, I mean, this, this just sort of reminds me of the whole like Me Too movement and cinema and all the like, um, 
the D-bags in the film industry and everything, uh-huh. right? I mean, it's just, I guess, the arts in general, it seems like this is unfortunately a thing. You know, I work as a photographer, uh, you know, well, I don't work as like a normal photographer, I don't, but like as an art photographer, and of course, so I'm tied into the photography world. And of course, there's like long lists of like horrible photographers out there that uh, models shouldn't work with because mm, yes, they yes. take advantage of them, you know, for the same thing. And it's, it reminds me of that because it's always like, well, the model will take a risk, even though they hear he's sort of like a major creep just because they want that, that sort of breakout, yeah. breakout moment. And it, it's hard, right? Like, like Richard, you knew, you knew sort of the risk going in and you still, you know, went for it because where we want to still succeed, right? Like, you know, we're, yeah. we're not going to fault these actresses who got, you know, like who got, um, you know, sexually assaulted or like basically blackmailed, you know, into ho- horrendous situations. Like, because it's, the industry is so stack- stacked against them, right? That they they felt like they had to, do this just to sort of succeed in in what they're passionate about, right? And I mean, right. Yeah, I I mean, I definitely knew what I was getting into. Nobody blackmailed me or or anything. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't forced to do anything that I I didn't want to do. Um, I think one of the things that made it complicated was I actually became friends with Fred. He was mm-hmm. he was fun. He he was fun to to hang around with. Um, you know, we we'd go drinking and we'd talk. He was he was a great storyteller, um, and he was very passionate about art. And he had he had great taste uh, in fashion. And uh, you know, it was fun hearing some of his stories from the past. He had an amazing life. He met so many people. So I kind of I I got attached in in terms of the friendship. And then we're still doing business together. And uh, yeah, it got really hairy. I, I, the when I finally pulled the plug on it, uh, I, he wouldn't let me know when the exhibition was was going to end. He had extended it. Uh, I, I don't know what happened with his calendar. Uh, God knows mm. what any anything could have happened. But there there was an opening following my show, and he wanted to extend the show. It's like, well, when will it come down and I can pick it up? I want to make these arrangements. And he, he just was dodging the question. Like I wasn't getting the artwork back and I knew that that was a risk with him. So I, I, yeah, that's when, that's when I pulled the plug and, and finally, you know, went my own way. So the lesson is if you're going to prey on artists, get really good at telling stories. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and have an art gallery in Chelsea. I mean, yeah, I guess yeah, off yeah. Of the high line. Too. It was a small space, but I kind of I liked the space and yeah. yeah, it was actually a nice space. Yeah, we published a catalog, so there were good things. I got a very high review from the art blog, um, and the, the catalog is really beautiful. Nice. Peter yeah. Sells, uh, art historian, you may have heard of him. He was one of my favorite critics. Uh, curator at MoMA for many years, gave Rothko a big show there. Um, he wrote an essay for the catalog. So, I mean, without that opportunity, without taking that risk, I wouldn't have had the chance to to work with Peter either. I mean, that was that was an right. amazing experience. So I did learn a lot. I can't say that I regret it, but it was painful. And, and you know, as you as you go through these experiences, 
it it takes a toll after a while, you know, and it's one after that. Because and David, you made a good point. Uh, Fred knew what he was doing. He he was he was a shade ball. But there are other people who are simply just incompetent. They, yeah. they may not even have a desire to screw you over, and they do anyway because they just suck. Then there are so many people <laughs> who don't know what they're doing because it's not like you need a degree or you even a passion in art to open an art gallery. You just need the money. Money. Yeah. yeah. Or the appearance that you have the money. So yeah. that, that segues into my story. Um, when I first left um, uh, college, I was working for um, an arts firm called Thomas & Associates, a uh, very highly ranked consulting firm. Richard uh, knows Jerry Thomas, who is the president yes. of it. And I was working part-time there. I was also working with a, a group of friends after college, um, and they had their own nonprofit art, uh, sort of art gallery, art space, art project. Uh, very multifaceted, a lot of interesting people to work with. Um, unfortunately, we were, you know, we were kids at the time, really sort of uh, relatively speaking, and we didn't do a great job of things like financing and bookkeeping and figuring out how to keep the lights on. So that's its own story. But um, I was also working for a gentleman who I will not name, who was a very... Um, uh, an impresario sort of on the grand scale. He was a big personality. Um, like Richard said about Fred Torres, this gentleman was a, um, a real storyteller. He had known a lot of people uh, throughout his life in the art world. He had published essays. He collected art. And he uh, decided he was going to open a gallery. And he decided I was going to be the gallery director and I was like wow just out of school and already I'm you know helping this gallery owner you know with his gallery and the gallery was a small space in a very old building on the very edge of Soho looked like a closet basically but you know, there was place for pictures to be hung and lights etc and so forth and so we went pell-mell into this and I started noticing things that were a little weird for one thing he was working with about 24 artists um, which is a mid-sized roster for a small gallery in New York. Uh, but he was giving these artists shows weekly. Mm -hmm. The show would go up, be there for a week, come down. Another show would go up, be there for a week, come down. And, you know, most shows are, you know, three weeks to, to three months, depending on the scale of the work and, you know, who the, the sort of the, the, uh, the target buyer is. And so I said, you know, why are we doing the shows? Why are they in such rapid rotation? People don't have a chance to even, you know, see the, the paintings. We're, we're barely getting any walk-ins. Uh, the location was sort of a little bit odd. You had to cross, uh, you know, a busy intersection to get to it. So it wasn't, you know, right in the thick of things. And he said, oh, well, you know, I want to do all 24 artists and then have a big group show with all 24 of them in it. Which uh, I should have guessed was not really an answer. So uh, the other thing that I noticed was that we didn't have a telephone. And I'm sort of like, <laughs> why don't we have a telephone? And he says, well, if I had a telephone, I'd be talking on it all day. And I thought to myself, isn't that how you kind of reach out to buyers and critics <laughs> and people that you want to get into your gallery? So no, no telephone. It was all just sort of word of mouth or whatever calls he made from his home office. So and then I noticed that the same I would say 25 or 30 
broken down old wrecks for the people who are coming to these openings. In other words, he wasn't getting a new crowd. He didn't get a crowd that came to see a particular artist. He got his friends who wanted to come by and drink free red wine until there was no more free red wine. I can't tell you how swiftly I came to hate every single one of these people. <laughs> they were disgusting. Um, Are those and the funny sort of, hat people? Yes, the funny hat people. Wait, what, um, wait why didn't you open with the, the funny hats? I feel like you missed an opportunity. The, the, the well, it's such a, I realize that it's a very condescending way of putting it, but the, I have a theory. There's a certain type of person out in New York and I call them the funny hat people because when I, when I was first starting out in the art world, they would obviously, some of them would actually wear funny hats. They had funny capes. They had funny dresses. They had funny shoes, whatever it was. It was something <laughs> wacky, something creative. And, you know, there were the people who sort of came to New York 20 years before I had, and they wanted to be artists or work in the art world. And their art kind of devolved, turned into a shtick. People did not take them seriously. Maybe it was just bad luck. Maybe they really didn't quite have the talent they thought they had. What they turned into was kind of a caricature of themselves. It was like Flanders on The Simpsons. So you had all these sort of people running around screaming and screeching as if they were Warhol superstars. And I was sort of like, Warhol, for God's sake, you know, he would pay you to lick the elevator clean at the factory. You have zero, you know, sensibility at all. You're just a, a, a rodeo clown in, in pancake makeup. I mean, you're like, you know, a drag queen kleptomaniac that had to flee a five-alarm fire. Get out of my face. Anyway, this ghastly crew would totter through these increasingly blurry openings until one day I came there and I found the, the owner taking the work off the walls. So when I say I mean he was taking it off the walls, he was taking out the thumbtacks that he had used to put the work on the walls. We didn't have a big budget. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, we have to take down the artist's work. Uh, we just got evicted. And I said, how did that happen? And he said, well, I didn't really want to tell you, but um, uh, I'm actually sort of renting this place illegally. That's why we didn't have a telephone. And they just turned out the lights. Oh. So we rolled up the, the paint, the, the, the works, which were drawings, preliminary drawings for a, a sculpture, um, rolled them up, put them into black plastic garbage bags, hailed a cab, went to the artist's studio, and handed her her work. She was not amused, and I wanted to die. Oh, man. I man. wanted to crawl under one of her <laughs> massive, massive sculptures and just turn into a little crumbled piece of crap and and never have to think about this ever did again. Did you ever was, get paid though? Did you get a paycheck? I, he did he was paying me at the beginning and I think he meant to, he meant to keep that going, but obviously the whole thing, you know, went up in a puff of smoke. His house is hard, yeah. <laughs> and um so I I said, well what do we do? And I said, well he says, what do you mean what do you do? What I do is, you know, put a padlock on this place and go home. So he says, well now I've got all this damn red wine. Because he always went out and bought all these cases of red wine for the, the 30 drunks. And um, as it turned out, my friend who was running the nonprofit at the time wanted him, uh, want, had said to me, oh, by the way, could you pick up some red wine for a cocktail party we're doing at my home for the foundation? So I said, well, you know, I think my friend would buy this wine from you if that would be helpful. And he said, yes, it would. So he went up with me uh, to the party. 
and then proceeded to get absolutely rip-roaring drunk himself to the point where my friend said, who is this person, and could you please remove him? So it was another chance for me to want to crawl under a piece of furniture and die. (laughs) Uh, I think that was like the single most humiliating professional day I ever experienced. Uh And what I came away with was this idea that, you know, when people are always on, something is off. When something seems too good to be true, like you've been fast-tracked somehow, really give it a a real look because 99 times out of 10, it probably is too good to be true. And the person may not be wishing to deceive you. Um, You know, in some cases, they actually legitimately think they know what they're doing or they they have an expectation that things will work out. In some cases, they've drunk their own Kool-Aid. They've been tasting that stuff so long you know, they, they actually believe themselves when they say that they're going to do this, they're going to do that, they're going to do the other thing. Yeah. So what they Richard's, think their hat's nice, yeah. Yes, they love their hat. Have you seen my hat? Let me tell you all about my hat. It's not funny at all. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, well, I've heard all about your hat. And it made me very, uh, it made me very bitter and very, um, for a long time, I, I didn't really like artists that much. <laughs> Because my knowledge of them early on as a professional were uh, these people who were not really artists. They were people who looked like artists if you saw a bad movie on Cinemax. Wow. It was kind of that deal. So, and it's, it is something that I look back and I'm like, you know, I, I should have seen this coming from a mile away. Uh, when I talked to my, you know, to Jerry and to other people who were sort of mentors for me in the art world, they were like, well, we were kind of wondering how long that would last because he's, a, you know, a flake. Um, but Jerry didn't was, get you that job, did she? No, no, she didn't. She didn't. I actually met this gentleman at a opening and happened to mention that I was looking for work in the gallery world. And he said, well, I'm opening up a gallery space. I'm working from a home office now. And would you like to be part of that? Yeah, a lot of the uh, sociopaths we encountered were, were, were encountered at openings. That's where a lot of people mingle and, and, and get to know one another. Yeah. That's where I met Fred Torres. Um, I was in a show at Waterfall Mansion on the Upper East Side, uh-huh. which I surprisingly was asked to participate in, but I, it turns out, I got into that show because of another sociopath that I had met. <laughs> the infamous. Uh, yeah, I remember I know his story, actually. Well, n- nobody knows his story because he told everybody that he was a Lebanese billionaire whose uh, mother and in, in, was a founding investor in Trump Plaza. And they had a, I don't know, the fifth floor of it to themselves. Uh, turned out he was cleaning dishes in the restaurant at Trump Tower. Uh, oh, that's yeah. funny. Yet everyone convinced he was a billionaire. He even ha- hosted a big cocktail party in a suite at Trump Tower. And we all thought, oh, this is his apartment. This is, or one of his apartments. I think his his supervisor, whoever it was, I think he might have been sleeping with her and it was like an exchange of favors or God knows what. But um, yeah, there are a lot of for his high recommendation Mm -hmm. to the the Korean developer of Waterfowl Mansion, the the, the one who owned the the gallery there. I wouldn't have been in that show either. So 
maybe I should be thanking all of these sociopaths. I wouldn't have <laughs> the essay by Peter Sells without Fred Torres. I wouldn't. <laughs> they just have all led me one to the next. But, and but then that's you wonder why that's... I failed. That that I mean, but that's that's sort of the world, right? I mean, because yeah. the only way to meet these people is through an infrastructure of sociopaths. It sounds <laughs> like, I mean, this but this is this whole interesting thing, and I think I think this is an interesting affliction um, in our world, especially with social media. Is it's too too many people take too many people on face value, right? They yeah. trust people to be who they purport to be. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and I hear this all the time and I can't believe people still fall for it. Like, oh, do you see this person's Instagram? They do this that, or the other thing. I'm like, it's their Instagram. Like they most yeah. assuredly don't do all that stuff. You know, like yeah. they're curating a fake life. And it's amazing how how people get away with that. Right. Um, and even, you know, in the art world that you can get away about being a billionaire when when you aren't. I mean, this is right. The whole like schema of multi-level marketing is, oh, I'm going to just like overspend and look like it's making me rich to try to convince you to take a really bad sales job mm -hmm. for this uh, essential oil company. You know, like, I mean, mm -hmm. except instead of doing it for essential oils, they're doing it for art, <laughs> which is which is I nuts. I remember sitting down once with another gentleman who I will not name, who had recently become a. You're much uh, nicer than Richard, should I, by the way. Um, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> all of mine. I, maybe we'll have to blank them out. We'll just do one of those. No, things. no, I, I said leave. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I just uh, well, this particular person, I don't know if he's still working in the in the art world. Um, he came to the art world from finance. And I sat down and I was, I had a conversation with him because um, uh, he was a, actually a client of mine at that time. And uh, I said, so I noticed that you have no art world background, really, um, which is actually quite rare in the art world. Most people um, do study art that, that have any kind of degree of professional uh, capacity in the, in the art world. Um, so, I mean, some of the artists can make it without quote unquote formal training, but even that's I think increasingly rare, uh, but this gentleman had come from a finance background and was now working with a, a major art company. And um, I said, so what attracted you to the, the art world? And he said, I love it because it's the biggest pile of unregulated cash in the world. And wow. I said to him, do you really think you should be telling me this? At least he's honest. Yes, but it also struck me as being incredibly foolhardy because at that point, you know, in my career, I knew quite a few people in the art world, and that's the wrong answer to give someone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, someone who's connected and can sound alarms, you mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was also sort of like, well, that's very interesting. So you're basically telling me you, you want in on this because you see more wiggle room than you would back in your, you know, digs on Wall Street or whatever. So I think there's a there's a... a there's a kind of a perception outside of the art world that, you know, we were talking about, you know, my kid could do it, that kind of thing. And people think that art is easy because it looks, it doesn't look realistic. And so it doesn't look like it must be difficult to do. But there's also the thought that because some artists and some galleries um, are really, really wealthy, you know, they're Jeff Koons or Gagosian or, you know, what have you, that it's an easy way to make money. 
And it really, really isn't, you know. And it's, uh, we were talking about how, you know, the arts in general seem to have a lot of eccentric behavior, and I think that's true. But I think the art world, the fine art world, might be a little bit more sort of on the deadly side than something like performing arts or, um, you know, liter literary publishing. Uh, Stephen King makes a million dollars. Jeff Koons makes a million dollars, right? Stephen King made his million dollars by selling a book to 100,000 people. Jeff Koons makes it by selling one object to one person. Mm -hmm. The ratio of consumer is absolutely different in the fine art world. There are you know, fewer art collectors than there are readers of Stephen King novels. And you're just, it's just harder, I think, to kind of amass the following and the credentials and the respect and you know, the museum sales that you need to really be financially a success. And yet, every time I look at a movie and I'm looking at, you know, someone depicting an artist who's not, you know, starving in a garret in Paris, they're always presented as, you know, millionaires. And I think that there is this kind of false sense that the, that the art world has more return than it actually does. I think a, a lot of it is not paying attention to the artistic projects that fail, you know, the galleries that close, the artists that don't make it. Um, and just concentrating on the kind of glamour and allure of what everyone thinks the art world is. There was a, a story about a, um, a gallerist who came into New York from um, Britain and hired a, a young lady who was an acquaintance of mine uh, and said, you know, I want you to be the director of the gallery and I want to have a big, big, glamorous New York City gallery opening. So she went and she looked at the lists of, you know, potential buyers that she knew, um, you know, she rang up the, the press, she, she did all the things that one is supposed to do, and she came back and she said, okay, this is what our opening is going to more or less look like. And he said, well, that's no kind of opening. I want a big red carpet and uh, searchlights and uh, champagne and this and that and the other thing. You know, an opening, a really glamorous opening. And she realized that he had, he had, he had definitely worked in the, you know, in the art world in London, where it's a much more sort of low-key thing than it is in New York. But he had these ideas in his head from watching Hollywood movies set in New York art galleries. And she tried to tell him, look, you don't want film stars. You don't want fashion models. You don't want searchlights. You want people who will come in here, look at the work, like the work, and buy the work. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't listen to her. So I went to that opening. It was an absolute disaster from one end of it to the other. Absolutely nobody who was there had any idea what it was about or why they were there or what was going on, because they were all people that he told her to invite. And, uh, you know, so I think that you run into that a lot in the art world where people have bought into a fantasy idea of it, you know, and I think that's not so much the case in other, in other types of uh, professions. Yeah, I mean, that, it sort of reminds me of, have you, have you guys seen uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop, the Banksy, yes, the yes. Banksy documentary? I, yeah. I, I absolutely love Exit Through the Gift Shop. And um, so the, what, what was his name? Mr. Um, Mr. Brainwash? Brainwash? Oh, yeah. I hate that guy. Yeah, but <laughs> I love that, that, like, and he has that sort of opening, which he's unprepared for, and it's just all this derivative, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like, um, pop art derivative, complete BS. And he has uh -huh. it like, does sort of gets all these people involved to make 
a huge show and then it has all these major stars and important people showing up mm-hmm. like that hype could like the hype uh supplanted any kind of actual ability or art and it's just like just yeah it's absolutely ridiculous um well which... there was a there was a um a gallery show that i remember opened up a, i believe a, a japanese architect created the space out on one of the piers, uh, Richard. I don't know if this if this rings a bell for you. Ashes and snow. No, I don't remember that. It was a group of very um, uh, large scale photographs of um, innocent children in Africa and India hugging elephants and tigers and cheetahs and things like that. It was sort of Hallmark card schmaltz, really. I mean, it was very junky, but they made a big deal of it. The people who had funded this thing. And they got, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie to show up to the opening, and everybody went crazy. And, you know, it was like, yay, 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 ashes and snow, ashes and snow. It was all over the place. And after a while, you know, the people in the actual art world were saying, you know, this work is really not good. And this whole thing is basically just a, it's a media circus. It's just, uh, they, they're, they're more famous for who they managed to have show up to the premiere than actually... The, who the yeah. artist is or if anybody yeah. ever buys the stuff or wants to see it again well, and as far as i know nobody ever did buy the stuff or if they did i don't know about it and uh, i haven't seen that artist's work again i mean richard we were talking about this about that whole like um fear of missing out right that well i don't know if you were on that episode david but we're just talking about how it seems like there's a lot of people who either reject all of contemporary art because they don't understand it immediately and uh-huh to avoid the embarrassment of having to think about it. They just reject it as stupid. Um, yeah. And that's sort of the, my kid can do it, not understanding concept. And then there's this other side of people who over accept everything for fear of being the only person who doesn't get it. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we're talking more about the latter too. It's really like people are like, um, are just you know some people are just really quick to jump on this because they want to be part of the thing and say i was sure. there, i was there i mean that's who you tend to meet at an art gallery because if you're in the other camp you you loathe going to those sorts of events yeah so mm-hmm. yeah like you 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 tend to meet those types who are sold on the pr and the hype and and all the all the media so uh, yeah it's it's a lot of false appearances but the, you know art in a, in a way is an illusion too so i guess it shouldn't be that surprising that you know the, the whole industry built around it is is nothing but a facade as well it's it's a sad situation because when you read about at least when i've read about some of the artists that i really admire like morris graves who we've spoken about before it it seems like earlier in the 20th century there i don't know if there were more but like someone like marianne willard i can't identify anybody who it reminds me of of Marianne Willard and and Willard Gallery. And I, I spoke to Peter Sells about that when we were doing the essay. I've spoke to uh, Morris's assistant out, out at the foundation in California. I've talked to a lot of people about 
you know, my feelings and, 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 you know, my desire to meet somebody like Marianne Willard connect with, and they laughed. They literally broke out in laughter and was like Richard. And I'm, this is years ago. I was early in my young, I was, I was in my early twenties. They're laughing out loud and, oh, Richard, people like that don't exist anymore. I don't know if that's true, but I can't say that I've met anybody like that who has a really clearly defined vision as as a curator uh-huh. of a gallery that that means something, that really stands for something um, and fights for that. Uh, and and supports their artists for years without you know meeting their their sales goals and uh, invests for the long term. Um, uh-huh. Like you said, David, the art market it's unregulated, it's manipulated uh, worse than the stock market. Oh yes, and it's everybody's trying to to flip the artists, you know. And there there's been a lot of literature published about that. Um, and even with this coronavirus thing going on, you hear it on the news, even with the stock market, everybody's wondering if like the world economy is going to collapse or the United States economy is going to collapse. And the economists are still talking about, well, if you were intelligent, you bought yesterday and you you sold it today. And it's like, well, who's playing the fucking game that's going to lead to the ruination of the entire thing. And so that's kind of what happened with the art market too, is it's just turned into a game, an extremely lucrative game for people who can afford to play, but at the the cost of, you know, deep meaning in, in in work. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's sort of the thing we, we talk about um, Coons and stuff and it makes me think of like Richard, Prince, right? Um, people who, <laughs> yeah. who who have been in the art world, right? With the YBA movement, uh, young British artists, right? Mm-hmm. A movement which actually helped change things in the art world, right? It helped us question further the idea of ready-mades and using someone else's work and collage, and you know, which was an important discussion then because it was sort of pre-internet, right? It was uh-huh. like. The YBA movement actually is an interesting movement and was important for the time because if you think about the internet, it's like, no, those were the discussions we need to have. And who was instigating those discussions? Artists. And then you have today where people like Richard Prince is still doing the same exact thing, not bringing anything new to the table, right? But he's one of the people who now have money and can sort of just not do anything interesting, not actually add to the discussion, but that's where the money's going. And you're just like, yeah, like, I guess kudos Richard Prince. You don't have to do anything new um, and people pay you tons of money for it. I mean, I feel that, you know, obviously uh, a lot of people accuse Warhol as being the, the artist that sort of started this, uh, this. I don't know that I would call it a trend per se, but um, that kind of put this into motion, the idea that, that Dave was just talking about. I think that that's a misreading of Warhol himself, actually. I think Warhol was actually a lot more, um, he was a lot more metaphysical than people give him credit for. I agree I, with that. Yeah, I do I think, 
I do think that the idea of art as something that is immediately recognizable, there's, th that hasn't really been addressed. We talk about art as being replicated. We talk about art as being commercial. But when you see a Warhol, you know that it's a Warhol. Whereas if I look at a, a work by Titian, I might for a second think it was a work by another mannerist painter. I'd have to really look at the work or know, you know, know the painting itself to know, okay, no, that's a Titian. I mean, I'm, obviously there are famous Titians that everyone knows is by Titian, but I'm talking about in terms of the style. If you came across yeah. an unexpected painting by almost um, any painter before the mid-20th century, you might not know right off the top of your head whether you were looking at a de Kooning or a Jackson Pollock. You'd be like, well, it's something to do with abstract expressionism. Oh, it's a de Kooning. Okay. You know? And then after a while, if you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're looking, you can, you know, I can look at a Jackson Pollock and know it's Jackson Pollock immediately, even if I haven't seen the work, because I've looked at a lot of Jackson Pollock. But the thing is, you show an Andy Warhol, it's an Andy Warhol. Everybody knows it's an Andy Warhol. And there's something about the recognizability of that that has created its own type of value. Would you like to see my Richard Serra? You know exactly what it's going to look like. Would you like to see my Jeff Koons? You know exactly what it's going to look like. I'm not I mean, saying Koons and Sarah are bad artists. But I'm saying they have created a type of work that is, it's, it's, it's almost like a form of branding. There's something about this artwork that suggests a stamp of a logo or a fashion label. And yeah. people want it for that reason. It's sort of like, oh, instead of Christian Dior, you know, I bought a Jeff Koons. Instead of, you know, some pair of Italian jeans I need a crowbar to get into, I bought a Richard, you know, a, a Richard Serra. <laughs> But, but so, so, I mean, I guess I think of it more, I mean, you're talking almost more on the aesthetic end, but I still always think about like the philosophy, you know, even talking about Richard Prince, my sort of whole point was, you know, like the idea behind it has gotten stale. And so I tend to yeah. think more of this idea. And I think Warhol had like it, like you said, there's a metaphysical and there's a philosophy there. And to bring it back to exit, the gift shop, I think Banksy in that, you know, is talking about Mr. Brainwash and he's talking about pop art and he said Warhol repeated images until they became meaningless, right? And right. then he goes, and then Mr. Brainwash keeps repeating them until they're still meaningless, right? Like, and I what? love- I, Is that what I, they I, said? Yeah, so <laughs> I may have misquoted Banksy there, but it was something along those lines. He said, Warhol repeated images until they became meaningless, which is super profound and has a statement about popular culture and everything. And I think it's, I think it's very brilliant, the subtlety with the, of this distinction. Then he goes, look, Terry, or Mr. Brainwash, the guy's name is Terry, and Terry just keeps repeating images until they're still meaningless, right? Like, right. he hasn't, and it's this beautiful little idea that, like, Terry hasn't done anything. He hasn't transformed anything, right? He's yeah. just repeating images now. There's, they're meaningless to begin with and they're meaningless to end. Whereas Warhol actually took meaningful images and repeated them and by repeating them, transformed them. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, he was, he was among the first to do that and yeah, exactly. on the phenomena of yep. the, the world Popular imagery. In, where, yeah. where, where the, we are inundated with, with visual you know, yeah. stimulation and it, it does become virtually meaningless. So yeah, you can't do it again and again and again, cause there was a time for that. And it's kind of like if somebody did urinal, you know, the, the fountain again, uh, uh, uh. it just, you, you can't do it again. It's the, like the time. Yeah, if you turn it sideways again, it's now a urinal one, <laughs> right? Like I'm going to take fountain, turn it sideways. 
and now I can pee in it. Like, no, that's... Unless, unless you turn it into a mini golf hole. Yeah, well, you did that. You... <laughs> so now you can't do that either. But you kept it sideways for mini golf. You're like, well, <laughs> if it's going to be sideways, I might as well imbue it with some sort of that function. That was just for fun. I wasn't trying to make a statement with that. Uh, I, was... I mean, it was a fun statement. I mean, it was still sort of a fun little, like, yeah. yeah. It was the summer kind of fun thing. But yeah, the art world, oh, well. Will it ever? <laughs> yeah, I don't I know think... what'll happen. I was watching this great documentary last night about Robert Crumb. Are you familiar with? Oh yes, I've seen that. I've seen that movie actually. It's it's very interesting. Crumb, yeah, it's it's by the director who did Ghost World, Scarlett mm-hmm. Johansson and uh, Tora Birch. But uh, Crumb, he's a famous uh, ca- cartoonist. He did comic books. And he got really big. He moved, he was from Philadelphia and he moved out to Hate Street when the hippie movement was getting started. And it was at the same time that comics were like just about to take off. So he happened to be at the right place at the right time, was an extremely talented artist and and started Zap Comics and they, they became huge. He did the the keep on trucking logo that you see on like the mud flaps on tractor trailers mm. and Fritz the Cat and but it it, it's kind of it's like the abstract expressionist. It's like so many of these movements that, that I kind of have a nostalgia for. I, I think about the past. It seemed like there was a, a culture where a, an underground counterculture could ferment and get traction and turn into something. Like I saw an interview with David Bowie, and he talks about that. And he said today, the way the music industry works. He wouldn't have even he wouldn't even have chosen music as 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 a as a pursuit. He wouldn't he would he said he would have gotten into the internet because the internet is where it feels like you might be able to do something subversive or you know countercultural or or, or underground. But it, it's like the the industry, the music industry, the art industry. It's become so commercial. It's become so uh, so much about pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to have that kind of sort of genuine, authentic, like grassroots, underground kind of movement. Can, can I can I just point out? Uh, was it is it composition with two balls by Jesper Johns? Just, uh-huh. It just feels appropriate right now because Jesper Johns was a gay man during the like abstract expressionism in the fifties, which was uh, just a bunch of which is a bunch of like masculinity and everything, right? De Kooning yeah. is doing his thing, and his wife Elaine actually is doing really interesting stuff. But since there are figures, it wasn't, you know, important or whatever at the time. Um, and then Jasper Johns in Abstract Expressionism, he did his. I think it's composition with two balls, but it's literally like abex on wood with like a crack in the middle of the wood and two wooden balls yeah. in the crack. Because his whole point was at that moment, it was becoming very popular to be like a male, you know, abstract expressionist. Uh-huh. Anyway, you were talking about all this. It just made me think about like those little subversive moves. And right. Art. That is funny. I just wanted it, to point that but, out. But. Yeah, it, it, that is funny. And these movements, they come and go. They they eventually are no longer underground and subversive. Yeah. They they begin imitating themselves and, and yeah. become you know, a formula. And that's what happened with Dadaism. That's why they abandoned Dadaism. It, it was, it was to be anti, 
was meant to be subversive. It, 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 Dadaism was meant to be uh, iconoclastic yes. and, and break down barriers and, 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 yeah. and break the rules. And then after a while of imitating each other, they formed new, new kinds of rules, iconoclastic rules. And so they, they abandoned even, even Dadaism. And so you could see that happen with Abex and Andy Warhol, you know, pop, pop art. He was very popular. We're talking about him like he was enormous commercial success, and he was for a period of time. And by the end of his life, you know, the, the younger generation, they didn't even recognize him at, at, at the clubs anymore. His, his fame waned. And, um, you know, it's his collectors that play the game and keep so it out. It's called painting with two balls. I just looked it up, by the way. Oh, um, yeah. the, the John, it just I love it because it came out. It, he did it in 1960, so the real end of the movement, which just sort of feels right. Like it's it's interesting to see um, mm -hmm. artists sort of recognize when these things have sort of gone their course and what they've become, right? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by 1960, yeah, like Abex had sort of run its course. It was popular, you know. Um, and it had just who who you were, right? The two balls being you were some sort of straight male making. You no, know, a lot of those pop artists were were poking fun at the Abex guys because they took themselves so seriously. Yeah. Like Lichtenstein, didn't he do that? Uh, it, it's like a it, it's a sculpture, but it looks like an Abex brushstroke. Oh, his brushstroke! Yes. I love his it. Brush yeah, his brushstroke, and great. then yeah. even Warhol in his Shadow series, he starts building up the backgrounds to look a little Abex because they got they were picked on. The Abex guys, like they probably were bullies. I would imagine with all the masculinity, and and then Andy responds with the whole paint by numbers series, which is so funny and clever. Yeah. Lichtenstein's whole series where he redoes famous works in his style, I just love, right? He just redoes famous works with the Bende dots. And Do you um, like Lichtenstein? I like Lichtenstein. Oh, I hate Lichtenstein. Really? I like Lichtenstein. And David, I, vote. You got to break right? Yeah, the you're the deciding okay. vote, David. Lichtenstein, yay or nay? Uh, yay, although I wouldn't call him a favorite artist. I think... I think there's again with Lichtenstein. There's usually non-committal. <laughs> I need a bath. <laughs> Sorry, David. I'll let you finish. Um, I just I feel there's more going on there than than art at first glance. But I also find him. He once said, if I'm remembering correctly, that he was attempting to paint a painting that would be so ugly that no one would buy it, and that never happened. Get words, out of here! That's he, bullshit. Uh, I think that's a quote by him. Um, yeah, but I think he and that that's... his use of comic book imagery and things like that was sort of a comment on the the fact that art there, there's a, a sort of an inherent banality to art that he was also, I think, trying to explore, or that's how he saw it. Um, I don't think he's a favorite artist of mine simply because I don't, I don't like looking at the work. I feel like it doesn't draw <laughs> me in. It doesn't draw me in aesthetically. That's an artist I could decide on the artist statement that I dislike them. Uh, I'm okay. exploring the banality of art. Okay. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know that he actually said that, but I think that's sort of at the back of a lot of the the comic book imagery. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I, I think you're right. I think that is I'm what a, he was saying with his artwork, honestly. I'm a less of a fan of the just like sort of the comic book imagery of like people drowning. And I'm more into the later stuff where he was where he recreated uh, famous works in his style and uh, just recreated like uh, old movements in his style mm-hmm. because it addresses the fact that people take themselves too seriously. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by the time a style gets accepted, right, like this is the problem, right. right? And this is the age old problem in art. It's like the moment people want to buy it, it's already passe. But the mm-hmm. problem is the people doing the thing that has the new statements, right? The people who are doing the right. things aren't the Richard Princes that actually have the money and the and the collectors, right? Mm-hmm. They're people who don't have the money. And this just sort of brings this whole thing full circle. And this is why I like Lichtenstein, because at the end of the day, with that later series where he was recreating all these famous works, it was almost like he was reducing them to to something printed in like a crappy rag. Right. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and for me, I like that because it's just sort of reminds us that, like, you know, like we need to crumble our high places if we're going to make something new and interesting. Uh-huh. Um and so, so that's why I like Lichtenstein, um, and that's yeah. the stuff I like from him particularly. So, so that's that's. So, but yeah, I mean, so so that's I guess sort of my thing is those of those of us struggling in the art world, like you know, keep on, keep on keeping on because you know, like you don't keep you on don't trucking. Want, yeah, I mean, massive acceptance probably means you've. I don't want to say sold out because that sounds like overly like I'm taking myself too seriously. But, you know, if you're doing something interesting, if you're pushing, if you're coming up with new ideas, there's a good chance you're not going to have a ton of people knocking at your door yet. You know, so. mm-hmm. well, they used to call that I, I had a, um, a literary acquaintance of mine, a, a, a woman who was an essayist who called that the penalty of the prophet. The person to first address something new is the last one anyone is listening to because he's yeah. the first one saying it. Yeah. So I think that that's true in in everything, um, you know, generally speaking. Um, and it's definitely true in in terms of art. Uh, it's really amazing how the people who are often the first to determine a new course of art were the last people to see any kind of real recognition or profit from it in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think the, the the examples that we've explored here of art world horror stories are of the reality of a uh, a dynamic, a professional dynamic that is inherently unstable, that is mercurial, that does attract people who are neurotic, that does attract people who are uh, dishonest, and that probably attracts a huge number of people who are out to fool one person themselves and do that, you know, on a daily basis. So, you know, in some ways, you know, uh, Richard, we, we were discussing how this is, the, these, this podcast series is for people who want to learn more about the art world and, so, you know, people who might be wanting to get into it. And it does sound like this entire show has been, oh, actually run screaming from the art world. <laughs> um, and I don't now, think that that's Do you know what, that what just happened for me? What? what I just acquired an even deeper appreciation for the virtual exhibition. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to meet any of these people. Exactly. You don't have to be, okay. See the artwork and you don't have to meet the people. You don't have to meet the people with the funny hats. We should. Yes. 
If only we had done this episode before the coronavirus episode. Yeah, no, our world is open. I mean, I guess, so, so take, I guess we should say to our listeners, take whatever advice you can sort of glean from these stories. But regardless, it could be worse. We could be working in Congress. So like, <laughs> we just, yes. we, it, we could always have more psychopaths. And so just, I'm just saying, count your blessings. Right. Keep keep making art. <laughs> and you know, for every every one of these stories that I have that is a horror story, and I've got dozens more if you're interested. Um, I have stories of being able to work with incredible artists, uh, work with very intelligent gallerists and curators. Um, you know, I've been very happy to have uh, a chance to work with both private and corporate collections, to work with museums, to work with educators. You know, there are a lot of absolutely spectacular people uh, and, you know, very, very beautiful works to encounter and experience throughout the whole breadth of the art world. So it's not all, you know, Dante's Inferno. Um, It just sometimes seems to head in that direction, I think, because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about trying to generate something new. Well, when you're trying to do that, you don't you can't really have rules. Or the rules that you have, you have to kind of ignore. So perhaps it shouldn't surprise us again, and I think Richard has has kind of pointed to this a little way, that to be truly creative, there is an element of that that can be destructive because you have to push past the thing that's in front of you to get to the thing you're trying to make. And when you're doing that, you are breaking things. And so the temperament that can do that or responds to that or wants to do that can be a person who is destructive in some ways because that that's part of the the kind of the chaos that they create in order to generate something so no it's true and and they feel exempt from the rules like i'm such a genius i'm so smart i'm so rich i'm so this that i'm above the rules they don't apply to me that's for the herd or the masses and Artists have been compared to criminals all the time, and and curators are artists as well, different kinds of artists, and and collectors, like we said, curating your own collection. So you're right. There's a temperament to the type of people who are attracted to the art world that that I think helps create that. Yeah, and that can be a good thing because I don't think that um, any of the really amazing work that has been created in the history of art um, I don't see too many of those people being, you know, people who were just there to follow the rules or behave politely or, no, they were people who had ambitions and they had egos and they had tempers. And that's the thing that helped create the work itself. So you kind of have to realize that along with a lot of obnoxious behavior, there is a real sort of a yearning for something that's very transcendent, um, you know, in the art world. And it attracts a lot of weirdos, it attracts a lot of moths, uh, it attracts a lot of brilliant people too. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's the good with the bad, but I think they are both kind of arising out of the same place in a weird way. Mm. Well, I, th- I think I'm going to just uh, end this with a question for myself, whether or not I'm a weirdo or a moth um, or, or brilliant um not sure which one i am but that's mm-hmm. that's what I'll, that's what i'll contemplate now tonight whether or not i'm brilliant or a moth um 
Well, if but you're... It's been a good... <laughs> oh, no, uh, you uh, continue. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it's been a good conversation. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, maybe, maybe some people will just sort of even take encouragement from knowing they're not alone and that we're exactly. all sort of dealing yeah, with these things. I think... We're all we're all dealing with these things, you know, whether or not you use these stories as ways to see warning signs, maybe not. But if at the minimum you can know that, you know, everyone isn't who they purport to be. Every artist who's pretending to be, a, you know, maybe like they've already arrived are actually struggling to, you know, to arrive. Um, and, you know, just I guess just maybe knowing that can can help some people out there because. It can can feel lonely. Yeah. Yeah. When you're being abused, for sure. But you're right. It does help knowing you're not alone. And I it, it I, I've been encouraged reading about my favorite artist and, and, and hearing about how they struggled with with similar situations. It's nothing new. Um, it's just the way of the world. Well, what Richard said in the beginning is the right. Um, it's the right approach. When you realize that you are dealing with somebody who is a narcissist or is abusive, you leave that person. And, you know, a lot of what I did with Thomas and Associates was arts employment. And that was the advice that we would give if somebody was having an employer who was abusive to them, whether they were belittling them, whether there was some kind of sexual harassment going on, you know, anything you could think of, really. It's sort of like, no, you don't need to take it. It's not your fault. You're being victimized. Don't be a victim leave the scenario and don't and it doesn't matter how rich and famous they are if they treat you badly they're not worth your time true amen all right well thanks guys uh it's been a, it's been a fun conversation this it's is brickyard composition richard <laughs> gabriel dave allen and david griffin till next time